Welcome to Praxis, a podcast where we chat with organizers and activists around the world to discuss the local conditions of the struggles they're engaged in, their aims and objectives, and the tactics and strategies they employ to realize them. I'm your host, Luke Hussey, and today we're delighted to welcome Lucky Kambula of the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland, or Massey. Lucky is a former asylum seeker who has fought for many years to demand the improvement of conditions for asylum seekers in Ireland and the abolishment of the asylum policy in place called direct provision. Lucky has been central in achieving a number of victories over the years and helped found Massey in 2014. Lucky, thank you for joining us today to discuss your work with Nasi. Thank you for having me, Luke. So before we launch into the questions, I'd like to just give a brief overview of Ireland's system of direct provision and a little bit about Massey. So for our listeners who don't know, uh, since 2000, Ireland has operated a system of housing those awaiting a decision on their asylum claim in supposedly temporary accommodation, typically owned and run by for-profit entities, including Aramark, the multinational firm. The procurement process for these contracts with the state are murky, and it's estimated that the Irish state has handed over a billion euro since the system of direct provision has come into effect. And while we could discuss the economics of it all day, what we're really interested in talking about here is the inhumane conditions of the direct provision centres and the fight that Lucky and others have taken to challenge it. Very quickly, it's important to note that the types of accommodation for housing people seeking asylum in Ireland can vary vastly. Historically, most did not offer any opportunities for individuals to cook for themselves, though this has changed somewhat over the years. Inappropriate co-living arrangements have seen families share rooms, including teenagers and their parents. Facilities without play areas for children or places to do homework, commonplace. And until 2018, the right to work was prohibited for individuals living within the direct provision system, which in some instances has taken upwards between 10 and 12 years. The psychological damage to people forced to endure these conditions has drawn massive criticism, including from that of the European Union, which, despite its own horrendous use of Frontex to police Europe's borders, forcing those seeking refuge into increasingly more dangerous routes, has nevertheless determined Ireland's policy not fit for purpose and has applied pressure to see its abolishment. So maybe that will indicate to our listeners just how bad the system in Ireland really is. A system that has been challenged most strongly by those living in the reception centres themselves. Lucky, I'd love for you to begin uh, by talking about your experience organising in the direct provision centre that you previously lived in, in Cork. You and others engaged in a strike, taking over the facilities of the centre and blocking staff from entering until your demands were met. What were the challenges organizing together in those early days? And can you take us through the growth of the movement from that point on as the strike spread to other centers, eventually culminating with the establishment of Massey? Thank you, Luke. Uh, what I can say is that I came into Ireland in 2013 and I lived in this system that you just described. And uh, I found the system to be very cruel and very uh, inhumane and uh, degrading and uh, there was uh, the one uh, thing that was really really bad was the length of time that people would be staying in these centers with no right to work no right to study a third level education no right to cook your own meals no right to drive no right to open accounts no right to actually exist as a human being but we were dealing with people who were already institutionalized who were already manipulated were already seeing nothing better than what they have been offered. So that was the main challenge to 
to be able to get people to see the wrongness in the system as we were trying to organize in the earlier days. This started with about two, two or three guys that we started to say, guys, let's just talk. Let's see if there is a possibility here to address the issues that we were facing locally. And we were focusing on the things that we're facing locally in the center where we are, which was something within our control, something within the control of the officials at that time. So our focus was to get people together to be able to see the small little things that were happening, some of the things that they were easy to overlook, and we start putting it together to say this was wrong. Everyone had, had something to say about what violate, uh, violations that they've experienced in, uh, in living there. At start, people were saying, no, the, the staff are okay, the manager is, is okay and all that. But as time went on, people realized, no, actually there was nothing, there was nothing right about anything because what the modus operandi of the management is that they will do what we call divide and rule. That is, they would look into those that are easily manipulated and give them small little benefits. Like when you ask something you get, you know, that you buy in from the people. And we had to, to, we had to overcome those to get everyone on board. Little by little, we had a couple of meetings before the actual strike because our mm -hmm. aim was to make sure that we are in one page. We don't have anyone that will sabotage the, the action whereby people think that it's not going it's, it's to work. Obviously, a lot of people thought that, no, this is not going to work. We tried it before and all that. But we were so strategic at that time in terms of making sure the buy-in of everybody. But we said as a strategy that, yes, there will be an, an action, but we are not going to be able to announce when the action will be. The reason why we took that stance at that time is for those that we felt that they can crack in terms of uh, 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 unknowingly divulge our actions uh, to the, the management whereby they will sabotage what actions we were trying to do. So we were very careful in terms of what information uh, we give because we had to have a, a, an interim committee of the core people that would be running things, making, uh, uh, taking uh, decisions, doing meet, meetings over and above the, the main group meetings that we would, would have now and then. In our center, there was a, a place, a, a common room. It's got chairs, it's got sofas, there's a TV there, and there are games, pool, people are playing pool, people are playing table tennis. So it was a social room. So this social room was 24-7 guarded by cameras, surveillance cameras. Okay, so initially we did not want to use that room, even though it could accommodate all of us. We wanted to use a room where they, there was no cameras in, in one of the blocks where we were staying, in a kitchen a bigger, where there was a bigger kitchen, not enough to, 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 to cater for everybody, but it was enough for us to be able to say what we wanted to say without being captured on camera. Okay, that was the initial part of our, of our strategy. Uh, but as time went on, when people now were freer, where people could see the wrongs of what was happening, we then decided as well as a group that, no, now let whatever happen happens. We're going to go and meet in that main big room.
so that we can meet together. Then we then decided that uh, uh, on the 15th of, of September of 2020, of 2014, that was the day that we we're going to strike. Okay. We did not announce this in the, in the, in the group, as I said, but what we said, we will have an indication on the day of the strike whereby we will trigger all the alarms of all the, the seven blocks that we were occupying in that center. We will get each person in the block to trigger the, the alarms. And there were people that knew how to, to trigger that because the alarms had smoke kind of signals and stuff like that. So one would trigger those alarms early in the morning. When you, when you hear those alarms early in that morning, you must know that is the day. And also you will hear whistles. We had people that would be going, going around and, and starting to whistle, waking people up. We did that on, at, at half past five on that particular day. The strategy was that we have to wake up early before the, main, the rest of the staff come in because it was going to be not easy. To move them are uh, to move them out once they've occupied the admin block. We just had four staff who were evening staff, which we informed them that we are now taking over. They can go outside the center and report to whoever that they are reporting to, and uh, then they can they can stay there and no longer come inside. We refused to engage with the local management. We wanted to engage with the Department of Justice. So they came down on, on, on day two. We did not agree. We sent them away because they were not prepared. All they wanted to do was us to stop the strike, was to feel guilty, us to feel that we are powerless. But we stood our ground. We say, as long as you are not addressing the issues which we have already given to you in writing to address, we had all the issues because the issues were coming from the ground. So we categorized all the issues uh, in, in, written down in terms of accommodation, in terms of transport, in terms of food, in terms of uh, uh, management. And it went for 10 days because we were refusing to open the center until there was a handwritten agreement on what was going to be implemented and when. On when that happened, then we said, now you can come in and, and start operating. And uh, what was important also to us, because we, we remember we closed the center, we closed supply of anything, food, cleanliness, and everything like that. We were very, very fortunate because of the way that we handled that protest, that we attracted the interest from the local cock people who heard about what we're doing and started bringing food to us. During that time, not a day that every, anyone went hungry. We made our food in our own time, in our own way. So there was no stipulated time because we were used that 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, it's breakfast. 1 to 2 is lunch. 5 to 6 or 7, it's, it's dinner. So everyone was conditioned to that. But no, we could wake up at 10 o'clock and, uh, and, and have breakfast at, at any time, whatever breakfast lunch no time you know yeah. so and also there was freedom of movement in the center whereby media now started coming in the center to expose what was happening before that strike the media had their own misconceptions of what was happening in these centers like we have everything we have everything that people don't have 
until they we opened the center and they see they saw themselves the conditions that we were living in the overcrowding the the, the mixing of families packed in one room family of three maybe family of four family of five one room no nothing privacy that we wanted one of the things that we said we not we needed to do to reduce the number of people those that were single men and single females that there were three per room so we forced them to remove the, 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 the third person and leave at least two people so that there can be a livable space amongst the two people who are in that. All these were reasonable. The transport for the kids that were being transported from the, from the center to the school and back, we demanded to have the little ones to have transport that will pick them up from the center and to the school and back because they had a, a bus already that was taking adults to town, but they never thought that children also need to be transported to the schools. And we also wanted to have a playroom for the children, whereby children can be able to, to just go and play, and uh, guys can, and ladies can just go to a, to a, to a uh, we, we wanted a room where people will have a gym. I mean, it was very useful because we got that. We got that at the end, and people were going there for mental wellness, you know. So because of what we did in Cork, we then had an idea of bringing this to the other centers and share our experience in our organizing and the successes that we, 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 we experienced in Cork. And we went to other various centers to share this so that people can start organizing in, the, in those centers and after that, there were a lot of centers that took their actions, even though none went to the extent of what we did at our time. At the end of the 10th day, when we now accepted the fact that they agreed to do what we wanted them to do, we went to the streets of Cork and we had a victory rally because the victory of the residents of that Kinsale Road was huge. And we wanted yeah. to thank the public to say thank you for supporting us. We, uh, we said in that rally that we have now succeeded in achieving the objectives of stage one. Stage one was about addressing the local issues. And we wanted people to taste victory how it is so that we can have that mobilize more people to address the national issues, the legislation issues, the actual asylum, the papers and everything else, okay? Out of that strike, the Minister for Justice at that time called all the NGOs, called them and said that she was concerned with the rise of protests in the centers and expected NGOs to do something to quell those protests. And then what she said there was that she was gonna create what she called a working group to investigate in terms of what is it that they can do to improve direct provision, to improve, or, or shall they, well, as they said, to reform direct provision. Right. We were against the reform of direct provision because it was, as people who were living in direction, we said there is no way that you can reform the system. It needs to end right. and to have a, a fresh start in terms of how are you going to be able to, to, to accommodate people and, and, and reduce the waiting time and, and have a fair system in terms of, of the asylum process.
and also deportations who were part, which was at that time a huge part of the people that were seeking protection. Yeah, it's uh, funny that you kind of already anticipated where I was going to go with my next question. And uh, thank you for elaborating on those early days um, at the uh, centre in Cork. So as we've discussed, the growth of the movement did begin in your centre on the um, Kinsale Road in Cork before growing into a nationwide movement. In a sense, the story mirrors what's done in workplaces before formal worker unionization happens. Uh, that is, operation outside of formalized settings and often outside of the view of the bosses, which in this case would be the management of the centers. But it's also somewhat different. Um, the risk posed to workers attempting to form a union comes in many forms, from harassment to outright illegal firing of the quote-unquote green leaders. However, in your case, the risk can be much more severe. For instance, the threat of deportation, as you rightly mentioned, looms large over asylum seekers. How did you navigate this fear? And in what way did you see the development of Massey differing from other mobilizations such as that of unionizing workers? Yeah. That fear is real. The two fears here that are happening in the person who is seeking protection and is the fear that they instill early when you come in the direct provision. When, when you come in the direct provision, they issue you with what some 40-something page document, which they call house rules, okay? They freeze people's minds with that document to say that your case can be withdrawn and you can be deported and you can be uh, removed or evicted from the center or moved from one center to another center just to disrupt you, okay? Those were real fears, okay? But how we handled that was that when we were negotiating with the department, we said we need something in writing from them to say that because of this action, there won't be any action taken to any of the individuals here in this center because of this action. That includes uh, being removed from the center or being victimized in any way. We demanded that from them and we demanded it in writing, okay? Of which they went, out, they went away and provided that in writing. We still have a copy of that somewhere where they say no one from this center will be victimized in any way in any way because of this action. So we got that guarantee and we wanted to make sure that the people understand that they will never be victimized because of this. It can be any other thing. They can disguise it in any other way, but it is, it's not going to be any forceful removal or forceful uh, transfer of an individual here to, from, from this place to another place unless the person asks to be transferred or accepts to be transferred, but not mm -hmm. because of the punishment, okay? Right. So those were, the, those were the thoughts that we thought about because we knew those fears were real and we wanted to have that surety. That's how we handled that part in terms of moving forward. That's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that guarantee that you got. Uh, it really is just wonderful to think about how these concerns were dealt with. Um, in a way, the solidarity and uh, unified nature of this document that you received does mirror somewhat the formalized unity of a union. I think that that kind of solidarity that you forefronted from the beginning is clearly one of the reasons for the longevity of uh, Massey. 
One thing that I wanted to circle back to, which you mentioned earlier on, was the use of NGOs in reference to the attempt to demobilize or quell the actions that you were undertaking. And it reminds me of my own undergraduate experience in 2014, 2015. Uh, I was analyzing parliamentary discourse regarding direct provision from 2000 onwards. And as a consequence, I had to undertake an extensive literature review of the reports that had come out from nonprofit organizations and NGOs. And while I believe these have a legitimate value, if not for at the very least documenting the asylum system in Ireland, I remember being struck by the language used and how it was always located in a kind of formal human rights discourse. And maybe more notably, seemed mainly to appeal to legislators and other political actors, kind of sidestepping those living in direct provision. And I'll say there are exceptions to this, but overall, that did appear to be the main tactic, um, that is, appealing to politicians on behalf of asylum seekers. And this model of advocacy has existed alongside the policy of direct provision since its infancy in 1999-2000, as it was being developed and rolled out. And despite the best of intentions, it clearly was failing to produce the kind of reforms that it advocates for. Whereas Massey, which was born out of your and others' direct actions in Cork in 2013, operates quite differently and arguably much more effectively. You began with direct action and presented concrete demands, and you leveraged the power you had effectively. A little later, I'd like to get to the topic of how Massey's non-hierarchical structure today relates to other political movements. But for now, can you tell me a little bit more about what distinguishes the tactics and language of Massey from more traditional advocacy-based approaches to challenging direct provision? And also, what has the relationship been with the NGO sector? I understand the state has typically chosen to liaise with them and not necessarily you. Okay, I'll start. Uh, uh, we, after, after our protest, we had a public meeting, which we organized as, as the residents of Kinsale Road. And we invited the members of the public and uh, through with also another uh, uh, sister uh, ki a kind of a, a supporting group, which is called Anti-Deportations Island, uh, who were much always in support of, of, of what, uh, what we did or what we were doing, still are. And uh, in that public meeting, one of the things that we highlighted that is problematic in us achieving what we want to achieve is the fact that we, 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 we did a slide presentation there where we aligned the problems that we have and how we can achieve or it can address those, those problems. And we, we put ourselves, we put the NGOs, we put the government, and we said that the power obviously lies with the government. But the problem that we had was that the NGOs, if they could be on our side in addressing radical changes that we wanted to address and move them to our side, we can put more pressure to the government. That was the ideal kind of scenario that we wanted to see, that the NGOs, instead of, of, of them trying to uh, mute our voices, at, at the, as, they would, as they were saying, that they are advocates for people that seek protection without taking the people with them. And we said at Massey, away with that. Ours, when we formed ourselves, was that we wanted to articulate the problems that we were facing on our terms. That is the, our, the, our main purpose of the formation, is to articulate the issues 
on our own. NGOs tried to come and uh, and to calm us down to stop to stop the strike. They they tried to come, even trying to 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 avoid us as leaders of that coming to the other people to come and and talk to us. But we stood our ground. Said we did not form this because of the NGOs. Okay, we have a yeah. life to protect here. Okay. And also, mm. when this the formation, when, what I mentioned earlier with regard to the minister, when that that, that uh, group was formed, we sent a request to be part of the group as Marcy at that time. We sent a formal uh, a letter to the minister to say we want to be part of that process because it's talking about our lives, okay? But no, only acknowledged and nothing happened. We wrote to each and every uh, member, and each and every NGO member who was part of that working group, to say, please uh, make sure that we are in on that table. And if we are not in that table, remove yourself yourselves from participating in that group. If we are not going to be there, we wrote to each and every one of them. Some responded. Some uh, uh, did not respond. Uh, those that responded said that they feel that they can make a difference and all that and all that and all that. And what they then did was that they co-opted some of the, because they, they, were, they were strong NGOs who had, their, who had their own members in direct provision, okay? And they co-opted some of these members to be part of their, of, of their whatever uh, uh, delegate. Okay, and to, to make it look like there are asylum seekers there, but there was no asylum seeker led group there. Right. Okay, we wanted that we have a voice of our own, of which whatever that they did to camouflage it did not work because we as asylum seekers were not there. Whoever was there was representing the NGO narrative, the NGO agenda which mm -hmm. we were against, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. So they learned from that because we, we stood strong in terms of being, being vocal about what we wanted to do, being critical about what they were doing. They learned from that because years later, whenever, when, like for instance, about three years ago when there was advisory uh, committee uh, uh, set up, some of them who were invited to come made sure that there is an invitation extended to Marcy. They made sure that there is an extended invitation to Marcy because they knew the history of that. And fortunately, uh, we had a space whereby we had a representative there as Marcy, not as a co-opted kind of a group to another yeah. NGO, you know? So we were there participating, okay? But obviously our views, we made our own submission in our own way not linked or aligned to any of the of the NGOs because our narrative is straight. We don't need to mix the language. We don't have to beautify the language to suit the legislators or the funders. We go straight to the to the issue. If there's mm -hmm. a problem with the minister, we go straight to the problem with the minister. We don't need to be fine-tuning the language so that it, it it's it's in line with what the funders would be able to control and write because they are controlled. By, mm -hmm. by, by, by what they can say, how they can say. There are some, so many things that are happening 
even now, you don't find them com commenting on racism. You don't find them commenting on things that are there. And we make statements that criticizes right. the minister because yeah. we feel the pain. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important to articulate yourself in the language that's outside of the kind of polite and um, the, the language that's typically associated with NGOs and government actors. I think that's why it's so important that Massey have provided this platform so that it's not people speaking on behalf of those seeking asylum, because too often I think the message gets lost and ends up reproducing the same thing it's trying to get rid of. And I wanted to very briefly go back to the way that Massey organizes itself. So you've spoken a little bit about how Massey organizes itself in a non-hierarchical way. And I've read before that you don't require any membership dues. And so one doesn't need any financial income in order to engage. I guess I'm just curious uh, in what way that, that has maybe presented challenges as the movement has grown. So I'm curious as to whether the movement suffers from the kinds of things that other groups do, such as burnout, lack of momentum, and if there's been cycles of increased activity followed by some lulls, because I know that from my own experience organizing, um, maintaining that energy can be difficult, especially as people move on with their lives. I mean, people in your instance might be granted asylum or leave to Moraine, and I just wonder how you've dealt with those challenges. Those are the ongoing challenges that we have faced over the years. And uh, we appreciate the fact that people come uh, and, uh, when, uh, and seek protection, and when they get sorted, they want to sort their lives and carry on with their lives. So mass is set up in such a way that you, as you rightfully say, we don't have, uh, we, all what we said when we were forming ourselves was that the fact that you've got a blue card, which is a, a, a temporary residency card, okay? You are an asylum seeker, and this is your home. You don't need to have anything to prove that you are an asylum seeker or you are a member of Mercy, okay? As we speak, for instance, now, we will have more than thousands and thousands of members. Every Tuesday at 8 o'clock, we have those continuous meetings started during the, the pandemic. So we have an attendance of an average of 150 every week from members from everywhere in the country. And, uh, and when people come and join, when they are still new, they get this information, they get educated on their system, they get their papers, they carry on with their lives, or they come back uh, and, and, and do whatever that they can do. We understand that things can go, but there are people that will new, come with a new energy, come with new ideas. When you have got a will to do anything, you can do it. When, you have got when you've got time, like for instance, we will be called to go to this place, go to that place, go to Cork. Like for instance, last, not the, the, the previous week, there was a function, in, in a, a fundraising function in Cork. Uh, where people who were fundraising for us were doing a presentation there in terms of the funds, the check that was, mm -hmm. uh, that was raised. We had members in Cork to attend that and, and, and receive that on our behalf, okay? Mm -hmm. So people know we can be in, 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 in Donegal, we can be in Mayo. There will be somebody who, 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 who will be there to represent Marcy. And, and mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting because it does lead me on to what I want to ask about next, which is Massey's relationship with other groups. 
one thing I've noticed uh, for the left in Ireland, uh, generally speaking, is that it has had more success in extra parliamentary movements than the left has had um, electorally, at least historically. And I'm thinking mainly the kind of referenda-based ones, such as marriage equality and abortion, but also the fight against water charges and privatisation, less successful being Shelter Sea in 2007, um, which was, of course, the fight against gas exploration off the north coast of Mayo. Uh, nevertheless, non-party organisations are where most people are putting their energy if they want to change something about the country. And uh, I just want you to speak briefly on how Massey have engaged with other struggles and other groups and other coalitions. I know earlier you mentioned Anti-Deportation Ireland and the kind of collaborations you've done with them. But uh, what other examples of coalitions with other groups in Ireland can you point to? And how do these impact Massey more generally? Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, well, from, from, from day one, we always uh, said to people that uh, we cannot be able to achieve anything on our own. We need to continuously engage in suggestive dialogue with other groups, with other members, with other uh, uh, individuals to make sure that we go ahead with what we're trying to do. We collaborate a lot we don't work on our own. So there's a the proverb that I like so much that we always practice the Chinese proverb that says, no bed flew on one wing. So we had housing projects, housing uh, uh, groups that we always worked with for many, many years. We had anti-racism uh, groups that we have worked throughout the years, anti-racism island, united against racism, we collaborate on many, many things. All the housing groups we, we, we involved in, in collaborating with individuals, academics, lawyers uh, that we collaborate with. Whenever we had issue, we have things that will need an, a, a legal lens. We got solicitors that we can pick up a call and run something with. When we organized, for instance, in 2019, we organized the, the con a big conference, which we, when we have an, in, an event, we, we, we put it publicly and then people will, will join. There's a group also called uh, Ramsey, which is uh, Refugees and, uh, and, and Migrant Solidarity Island. And mm -hmm. recently also is, there's Kartu that deals with the, the housing issues. You know, that conference was co-organized by many, many, many individuals. Up to recently, last August, we launched our second volume of our journal, which was collaboration of, of the stories that are from the people who are in direct provision or have been in direct provision. Four academics helped us to put that together. It's got contributions from the children, contributions in terms of poems, essays, it's a, a whole range of things that you can teach a child in any school in any country about the life of the people that are living in direct provision in their own words. People fundraise for us. For, for, for instance, just to make one quick example, yeah. last yesterday, yesterday, just yesterday, we cooked for the people who are not housed by the, by the government who are sleeping in stand, tents facing racism from the far-right people and uh, we cooked for them. We went there to cook and serve them food. Okay? Amazing. Yeah. And we post about that, touches people, and people start saying, hey, this is what I can contribute. 10, 10 euro there, 15 euro there, 20 euro there. Please continue to support the people. It definitely seems that the kind of collaborations and connections you've made to other groups have been 
really important for the um, uh, success of Massey over the years. Um, one thing I would like to return to, though, and it's something that you have kind of touched on slightly already, is the current housing crisis. I feel it's important to note just how different the conditions are since you started organizing. The recession of 2008 was relatively recent memory when you first came to Ireland in 2013. And the main housing issue at that period was the collapse in prices and abandoned and dilapidated housing projects. And of course, selling off of a large portion of the housing stock to um, you know, private equity firms. The current crisis itself being an outgrowth of that um, exact thing. And so the, you know, financialization of the housing market, the speculation of the housing market means that the reality for asylum seekers is no longer simply whether to improve or abolish the direct provision itself, but also to navigate an increasingly chaotic housing market, both within and then outside of the direct provision system. Can you explain to us how these developing conditions have informed the tactics of your work in Massey and in general how those seeking asylum have responded to these challenges, either during or after their asylum seeking process? Well, ever since I came in this country, all I had was housing crisis for the past 10 years. When I got my papers in 2016, I looked for the house for the whole of 2017. I looked for the house for the whole of 2017. I was living in Dublin. I could not find, uh, I don't know how many emails, how many viewings I got Mm -hmm. to go until I had to go out of Dublin and go to Wicklow, where I'm currently staying. I had to Mm -hmm. move to Wicklow. I had to accept the fact that I cannot be in Dublin, even though my activities and my actual job is Mm -hmm. in Dublin. And the active, because I have a job that I am working as a full-time person, and I yeah. have massive issues that our activism, which we do after the job is done, and right. during weekends, we feel it. We feel it from from the from the members that get their 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 right to stay in the country. They stay up to three, sometimes four years, looking for the housing, and. Uh, it's, it's more than there is a lack of housing and the price is going high. There is also racism around it of the fact that because of who you are, you're coming from direct provision and it's not an attractive candidate mm-hmm. to the person who owns that place that this person is coming from direct provision might not be able to pay anyway. So they overlook that. So we're faced with that, okay? I know the government now uh, said that they are gonna uh, uh, appoint some, uh, put some money aside to appoint some NGOs that will look into supporting the people that are, are, are transition transition from uh, direct provision to to mainstream housing, and uh, which they are not really really successful in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it it makes the movements to be a little bit costly for me to be. Mm-hmm going for my activism in Dublin where, and then come back to Aklo, where I stay. Yeah. And as, of, as we speak now, I am directly in, in, facing that dilemma of, of the house that I'm living in being sold, that I need to find a place. And for the past two months, I've, been, I've not even get one, one viewing accepted, not one. 
This is exactly the situation that I think is facing a lot of people. And it's, of course, a double crisis for those who are moving through the asylum process. Um, even if one is successful in their claim, there's obviously no guarantee uh, that's any kind of, uh, you know, um, material security around the corner. It's something that's just compounding the stress. Uh, but there's one point that I uh, want to speak on. Um, obviously, we've talked at length about Ireland's uh, reception of asylum seekers generally, but we've done so without attending to the topic of the war in Ukraine. Of course, this is one of many wars. It's uncertain whether peace in Ethiopia can be maintained, if a ceasefire in Yemen can be brokered. All the while, people of Sudan suffer massively as two strands of their military uh, engage in a power struggle that threatens the entire country. But the victims of the war in Ukraine have been treated far differently than others fleeing war or persecution elsewhere. The development of a two-tier system whereby Ukrainians fleeing war are resettled with the allowance of a variety of social welfare payments usually provided only for citizens, while being separately accommodated from other asylum seekers, has garnered legitimate criticisms and accusations of racism. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar recently and scandalously claimed that, quote, The situation is different. This is a crisis that's happening in Europe. Europe is our neighbourhood. When something happens in your neighbourhood, in your parish, on your estate, I think it's only natural that you're going to respond in a way that perhaps you wouldn't if something was happening in a different part of the world. He adds, they're coming here legally. Now, clearly this is a disingenuous statement because precisely the reason why people come here through dangerous or informal avenues to claim asylum in the first place is due to policies which ensure little to no way to claim asylum here, namely the Dublin Convention, which demands one claims asylum in the first EU country they find themselves in. As an island on the northwest of Europe, this means any asylum seekers that are placed here must go through channels that are pre-approved with the government such as the resettlement scheme established for refugees fleeing war in Ukraine. My question is, how has this crisis in Ukraine affected the demands of Massey? And has there been any attempt to scandalize this clearly racist policy? And has there been any attempt to establish ties with Ukrainian refugees settled in Ireland? Or has the two-tiered system rendered solidarity essentially impossible as those privileged by the system simply get on with their lives now that they're in Ireland? So when the crisis came, when cards, the the, 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 the the permanent the residency cards were issued to Ukrainians, the schools were provided to Ukrainians, accommodation were, private, were provided to Ukrainians, money was made available to Ukrainians, the social welfare offices were not processing anyone else, anyone, I'm not even talking about the, the, the international protection applicants, I'm talking about the already refugees who have been declared. They were not right, being right. serviced by the social welfare office unless they are Ukrainians. Dublin right. became Dublin, Ukraine. Yeah. Okay? Obviously, we made statement that we are in solidarity with yeah, what is course. happening in Ukraine. You know? We, don't, we condemn the, 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 the attack of Ukraine by, 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 by Russian Putin. Mm-hmm. But... We felt that, we said it, that once people are here, they are no longer in danger of anything because they are already in the country. The visas were scrapped. They could come anytime. Scrapped just like that. Overnight, they were scrapped, moving, and 
They started to say 20,000 they will accept. It went on by, by tens of thousands, up to 60 to 70,000. They found accommodation. They found work for people. They gave them money. Even when they get money, they, get, they, 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 they have a right to work. Even they work and get the money and get and, and, and accommodated. They've got full doll money, accommodated, and some working. You go to the under international protection applicants who are coming from also distraught countries, Yemen, Afghan, your, mm-hmm. uh, your Palestine, your, yeah. your, your, your in Africa, Ethiopia, and everywhere in Africa. People are, are not addressed the way that they were Ukrainians, let alone the unfortunate statements that were coming from the government. The, the gentleman that you mentioned, Mr. Leo Varadka, has not said anything positive about migrants in this country. Nothing from the time that he, 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 he took office. He has never said, he was the first person in 2019, uh, no, 2020, to refer to the tents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He spoke about the tents in 2020 already. That mm-hmm. we were lucky here. Yeah, we could be complaining, but we were lucky that uh, we 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 were not in tents yet. That's what he said. When we are complaining, he is the first person to say that they, there is not. It's not compulsory. It's not compulsory for people to stay in direct provision. If they don't like, they can, they can go. But it doesn't tell people that if the people leave direct provision, they don't get the right uh, 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 support. They don't get yeah. support from the state. So you 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 are on your own. It doesn't tell people that it says no. You're free to go. You know. And when he says when that that unfortunate statement, it will haunt him up to his grave. To mm-hmm. say that as a humanitarian, you differentiate people because of mm-hmm. their proximity. They are your yeah, neighbors. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd, and it's, I think it's, it's it, yeah. No, because, yeah, I'd just like to say that it does kind of lead us up to this point in time, because I think for a long time, people in Ireland thought that the country was somehow immune to racism. Now, of course, it's obviously laughable because we tolerated a racist system for so long. But nevertheless, there was a kind of an idea that we were immune from the kind of far right that has emerged in other countries. And so I'd like to maybe use this as a moment to discuss the recent and unfortunate increase in racist and far-right mobilizations seen in Ireland, and specifically beginning in the inner-city area of Eastwall. Um, We've also seen attacks on a cap in Ashtown, where a number of homeless men from Poland, Croatia, Hungary, Portugal, India, and I believe Scotland were attacked and driven out. And uh, now, just a number of weeks ago, Uh, Asylum seekers who were camping in tents near the International Protection Office on Mount Street in Dublin were attacked by anti-immigrant racists, but um, thankfully there were people gathered there to counter this and aiding in the the rehousing of those victims um, by placing them in a vacant property. Uh, I believe the group are called the Revolutionary Housing League, uh, though I admittedly don't know much about them. But in this instance, they've provided um, vital support. And I guess so what I'd like to ask is uh, what has been um, your involvement uh, with these counter demonstrations and where do you see Massey in relation to it? Full disclosure, I personally don't view the responsibility uh, of this um, countering of of the far right to lie with, um, you know, individuals or groups who would uh, likely be uh, the recipient of their um, hatred and uh, ire. Uh, Nevertheless, I am intrigued as to... uh, 
how you have, um, you know, uh, dealt with this uh, insurgent threat and, uh, and maybe you could speak more on, on the topic generally. Okay. So I'll go back. I know people think that these things just started in terms of the far right attacking refugees and asylum seekers here. I'll go back in November of 2018 when the first attack happened in Moville, Donegal. I was there, there was a hotel that was due to be opened there that time. And the local organizers invited us at Marcy to come and uh, they wanted to learn about the, 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 the dynamics in direct provision, what are the expectations and all that. We were planned we planned to go there on the 30th of November of that uh, of that year in 2018. We left with a colleague of mine a very early hours of that Sunday morning. And while we were halfway through in in in, in Monaghan, we got a call from the from the welcoming group there, the organizers, to say, ah, we woke up here that the, the hotel that was earmarked to be uh, housing asylum seekers has been touched has been banned, okay? And uh, the, the, the people are scared in terms of uh, going ahead with the meeting. One thing I said in the call to the caller, I said, okay, the last thing that you can do is to stop the meeting. We are gonna go ahead with the meeting, tell the people to come to the meeting, tell the guard to be around that place. That person will never come because they are cowards. They will never show their face during the day. We, we, I, we went there. The hall was packed of people supporting the the idea of people uh, uh, coming coming there uh, 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 to to welcome them. So ours was to to galvanize the locals to to understand that the people that are new in the country need each and everyone's help, solidarity. And and take time to know them, greet them when they when you see them in the street, ask them how they are, you know, for them to just have that understanding to build communities. Ours as Massey is to build communities within the locals and the direct provision because of our understanding right. of the exclusion of the locals in direct provision. Because direct provision has been for years been hidden from the people deliberately yeah. by the government. Yeah. Okay, so ours is to bring it to the to the people so they they see the actual people. So that was Moville. It went and it went on to Roscommon. It went on to Roski. They built a hotel there, and that was earmarked for for direct provision. I can go on and on and on. That was ongoing. It was quiet for a while, and people relaxed. Okay, then. When it emerged last year, that's where people started waking up and said this, this, that, that, that. They have been organizing. They have been organizing. The sad thing is that the government is not seen to be doing something strong legally, legislatively, to curb these kind of activities. Up to today, we don't hear anybody being held or charged for all these things that have been banning, what kind yeah. of of of, uh, of, uh, of intelligence that people have in this country that they can be people that can get away with it? Eastwall is is just one example. Ballymoon, another example. Femoy in Cork, another example of 
the far right rising against the vulnerable people. And what we have been saying to the government, surely, surely it cannot be allowed that people can be uh, harassed at their own homes, at their own homes. Imagine if people are allowed to, 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 to protest outside your home, a private home, and they have, they have been allowed by these laws of this country to do what they are doing. And it's not up to us at Marcy to counter that. Exactly. Ours, when we have an opportunity is to, to tell how we feel about these things. We mm -hmm. have been on TV, we have been on radio stations to try and condemn and, and, and promote peace. All what we have, and when we have an opportunity, is to, is to make sure that people understand that we are peaceful people. Yes, there could be one or two things in our society, one or two people or person in our society will go this way, of which the Lord should take his course. It doesn't mean when there's a mistake that has happened because there's been fights in these places, in like in East, in, in uh, City West, of which the, the far right take, take they, they, you know, they, they said it gives them appetite when they see something wrong happening. There's been fight in, in, in Hotel Kilani. You know, and they say they were the people that you bring them here. You know, the fights are caused by the fact that you bring a lot of people in one place at one time who've got different backgrounds, different affiliation in terms of their religious belief. You put them together. You don't give them anything to do. Surely, surely, these sacraments will 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 come up there. Mercy continuously promotes peace and peaceful settlement. And we want to see the law taking its course. We want to raise a parliamentary question to the minister mm -hmm. in terms of why, why there was so much or less response in terms of putting the people at risk. How can you help? Whose temporal homes? Because that is that tent becomes your home. Whose temporal right, homes right. were banned? I spoke to Simon yesterday, who was one of the guys whose tent was spent, he was saying to me, my belongings were in that tent, the, the, my clothes, uh, my blanket, my laptop that I brought with me is spent. You can look into the, uh, the person's face and you think, what kind of hearts do we now have? What kind of stony hearts that we have that we don't think about the individual? What is it that they will achieve in terms of the actions that are, that are, are against migrants? asylum seekers and refugees. What is it that they will achieve? Because the housing issue cannot be solved by, by, by banning tents. It's the, it's the government that put people into these tents and they have no alternative. They are not fed. The government is doing nothing. We had to yeah. intervene with the government to say, at least give people their weekly allowance, even if they don't have an accommodation, because that way they were doing, they will chase people away and say, you, we don't have accommodation, you go. And we said, please, at least give them an allowance, the weekly allowance, so that at least the person, even it's, 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 it's nothing much, but it's, it's, it's better than nothing to have something in your pocket where you can be able to, to call home, to say that, no, I'm, I'm in the streets, but I'm safe, you know? There must be that connection because the attitude that they've shown towards men it's, it's going to create a problem in the future because of how they are treating men that are new in the country. 
So you don't know what's going to happen there. It's increasing the level. It's just people are, are, are just matured enough not to be involved in any criminal activities or being violent anyway. But the situation that it, they are faced, they are find themselves facing, it can lead to anything. And the government is failing them. It's good. What we, what we appreciate seeing is the, is the Irish people that are standing up against these bullies. Right. And it, it needs the Irish people to show the Irish racist yeah. people that they yeah. don't want this in their country. It's up to them to do that. Yes, I spoke into rallies uh, where it's organized by, uh, peacefully. I spoke to condemn this and tell people how people feel, how, how children feel when people are shouting, go home, go home, go home. You, 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 island is full. You don't have the documents. Also, lastly, when the government is issuing statements of people that they have received that have no documents, surely people understand by now, after so many years, in 2023, uh, that a person that is running is not a, a fugitive and is not a holidaymaker, is a refugee, is a person who has something that happened to them. They had to live to protect their lives. When a person is leaving a, a, a place running, you don't have time. And if you, if you did not have a passport, you don't have time to go and apply for a passport. And yeah. when you're now issuing stats that out of this, uh, from this time to this time, so many people came with, with no documents or false documents. And that is what the, the narrative of the far right is saying to, to justify their actions. So we are doing, the government is doing the work of the far right by yeah. releasing information that is useful to the far right. Nobody else is not useful to anybody else. It's useful to the far right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I feel like the relationship between the government's rhetoric and policies and the far right isn't discussed nearly enough. And of course, as you stated, the lack of serious investigation or legal action um, that, that, that ought to be taken uh, against those committing really serious crimes such as arson is uh, contributing to its flourishing. Um, the law is obviously not being leveraged against fascist violence. And uh, it seems that there is little political appetite to follow up on these events. And then again, as you say, on top of that, the kind of selective release of information that assists in reinforcing the far right narrative is really, really damaging. But uh, before we close up, there is one thing that I would like to talk about, and that is the future of direct provision. Um, you know, we've spoken a lot about the policy itself and the conditions of the reception centres, but in 2021, the current government in Ireland published a white paper that aims to end the for-profit system, which is something we didn't really get to talk about in great detail, but it is a scandal in and of itself that these centres are run by for-profit entities. But um, nevertheless, this white paper aims to end the uh, profit system, uh, endeavours to do that by 2024 with a new system in which temporary state-owned accommodation will house newly arrived asylum seekers for no more than four months, followed by um, so-called owned-door accommodation, which would allow for independent living. The paper contains a lot of things uh, such as expanding funding for wraparound support and expanding the ability to make complaints to the ombudsman 
Uh, but Massey has published some well-argued critiques of the proposed new system, such as asylum seekers requiring four months in temporary accommodation before uh, being able to move into independent living, and that for single people, there will still be co-living arrangements with uh, shared utilities, really not too dissimilar to the system that we have in place um, now. Can you talk us through some of your reservations uh, regarding this proposed model and maybe give us an update as to where the government are in terms of even delivering this replacement system on time well, uh, as of this recording? As far as the white paper is concerned, we had reservations from day one it was published because we did not see the practicality of this happening and the time frame that they've given themselves. And uh, it has been a concern of ours that more than the Ukrainian crisis came. But even before there, there was no clear plan in terms of implementing those uh, resolutions of the white paper. The, the simple one is that they were, they were saying they were, gonna, they were gonna have their about six reception areas or six centers where they will own that land of theirs, okay? Where people then can be can be in that in that setup for about four months, and we argued that that four months is, is is not practical, okay? But we would be at least hopeful if we could see that okay, out of the six centers that they said they were gonna be able to provide, how many they've started building? The answer is zero. Okay, right. so that is within that has got nothing to do with the crisis. It's about you doing what you say in terms of finding the land. As a government shouldn't be too difficult to find the land. It's not me and you that is looking for a land. The government should identify the land and start building in that land to do what they said they were going to do. The own door, uh, 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 to, the own door uh, proposed accommodation is something very far to the future. It's very, it's very, very far. And it's even worse now with people, we are talking about on-door on accommodation or some reception. They don't have reception with people spending more than three months not even accommodated anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's like an impossible so, task they set themselves for yeah. based on the fact that there's no political will there to actually achieve this. And yeah. it was already four years into the future almost when they published it. But of course... We're almost, we're almost there, and there's no sight of this happening. No, no, no. Now that we, we don't believe that there will be, uh, uh, the white paper is just another, another document that will collect dust in government. We met with the minister two months ago at, at our request to address some of the things that uh, we wanted to address with him, uh, 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 which, which we face as crisis. As one of them was the... Uh, the, the the government progress in terms of of the white paper, he could he, he could not really really specifically say uh, what is it. There is a board that is a there's a board that has been appointed. I don't know what that board is 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 doing to look into the implementation the implementation of that. That he said there is one board that is is done. We, we did not want to get involved as far as that is concerned, uh, but there is a board, but. To what extent it's gonna do some some of these things, I have no idea. Uh, so, but we right. don't have hope in terms of the 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 implementation of what they said they will do. 
Yes, direct provision as, as, as a system, we still believe that it needs to end. We still believe that profits should not be made out of the misery of the people. We still believe that government should not find themselves uh, where they are like kind of begging the, 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 uh, the service providers who are for profit because of the fact that they are in crisis. So they beg anyone, anyone, anyone that can have a building now can just name a price and there will always be those profits until government captures that part on their own, until they, they take that responsibility of relying, they've relied too much on the hotels, which they've sucked money out of them, money, millions of monies out of them. They've sucked them. And then they, they, when they are tired of their money, they dump them and then carry on. Because remember, during the pandemic, the hotels were, were, were non-existent. Okay, and to recover, what did they do? They put the refugee, the asylum seekers, and charge them exorbitant monies. And within one year or two years, their profits have doubled. After that, they said, "Okay, we're gonna get back to our to our guests now because we have enough money now to carry on with our lives." And that is what is happening. That is why so many people now are homeless. That is why because hotels have closed in Kilani, they have closed. Travel lodges, they are closed, they've closed. Uh, all these main hotels have closed. So there were more than 100 people in each hotel, 200, 300 in some hotels. So they need to now find places for, this, for the people, uh, uh, including families, including schools. It's a disruption of the lack of plans from the people that are paid to plan ahead for things. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's so frustrating to, to see such lack of movement on any of these things. The fact that, you know, as you say, the hope is, is kind of non-existent when it comes to the ability for the government to do anything on this, despite the best of intentions, ostensibly their intentions. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to end on such a sour note, but um, I'm just wondering if there's, if there's any last bits of hope maybe you want to you wanna, give our listeners so that we can have somewhere to look towards in terms of the kind of work that Massey are doing. I mean, the victories are self-evident in terms of the improvements uh, in the, the minor improvements, but they're, they're significant yeah. nonetheless. Um, do you have anything else you want to add? I know that your Massey conference in 2019 was very successful. Is there any talk about doing another? And, and what can we expect to see yeah. from Massey in the coming months and years? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Our target now is to, we, we, we will be 10 years in 2024, okay? We plan to have a conference, a huge conference in mark of our 10th anniversary, somewhere in October of 2024. So that is something that we, we will be working on now uh, moving forward. Uh, and when we did that conference, we, 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 we did a crowdfunding uh, to raise funds for that because there's no uh, there's no group or anyone that could uh, have a logo and say that they funded this and that and that we rely on 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 the people there is a, 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 our our website people uh, can just go you can share our website with the people www.masi.ie there is a support page there it helps us to keep us to keep the fires burning to keep us mm -hmm. moving we need to we need to have to to be in that culture of not giving up we need to know that victory 
is 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 not next door. It's not next year. It's 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 a continuous thing because the movement of the people, the immigration, is something that will always be with us. There will be yes, new sir. people, so we need to stay put. We need to continue doing what we're doing. We need to continue thinking about the people that are are, are, are suffering. Whatever that we do, let's not forget the sufferers. We need not enrich ourselves uh, out of the misery of the people that are suffering. If you are in this activism and for that purpose, you are at the wrong uh, space, you need to dedicate your life to the betterment of the others and make sure that you create a path for a person who has not even reached your country to be able to smile and have a happy family at the end of the day. That's all I can say. Thank you so much. Um, Lucky, this has been a hugely illuminating discussion. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be grateful for having heard about the amazing history of Massey and the ongoing vital work being done to challenge Ireland's uh, asylum policy and the fight against racism and discrimination. Um, as you mentioned, I will link in the show notes to where people can find out uh, more about the work you're doing and donate to help keep those cogs in motion. Um, Massey.ie, uh, of course, but I'll also link to some of the social media channels that you're on also. Um, yes, with that, I'll say thank you so much again. And um, yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck in the future. And um, thanks again and chair for now. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you there, Luke. Praxis is produced and presented by me, Lucasi. Music is by The Nation Mourns. Artwork is by Fabia Ferus. This is a new and independent podcast, and it would really mean a lot if you liked and shared us on social media. All of the links for this are in the show notes. Leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts also really helps. And of course, supporting the podcast over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PraxisPod. It's a massive help. This podcast requires significant time and costs, and by supporting the podcast, you'll be helping to sustain this process moving forward. There are some really nice interviews coming up, but they require research and time, so your support will help make these conversations the best they can possibly be. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Ciao.